You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. Well, good morning, Cities Church. It is great to be with you on this lovely Sunday morning. It's always lovely when you wake up and you have breath in your lungs and the grace of God in your life. I am excited to get to Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, Hebrews chapter 9 is probably... Uh, one of the most theologically rich chapters in the entire New Testament. Uh, I think that's, that's saying a lot because there's a lot of theologically rich passages in the New Testament. Uh, this morning we're only going to look at the first chunk, but the first half or so of chapter 9. And then over the next two weeks, God willing, uh, Pastor David Mathis and Pastor Max will take us through the rest of the chapter. And I am so excited about that. So excited. Um, before we dive in, I just want to pause again. I know Marshall gave us a fantastic exhortation. Just, just want to say to all the mamas in the house this morning, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. We live in a society that devalues motherhood. And I just want you to know that I, I'm a fan of mamas. I got a good mama. I'm married to a good mama. Happy Mother's Day to all of you. I also know that Mother's Day is a painful day for a lot of women. A lot of people, for various reasons, mother, women who want to be mothers but are not, maybe you're estranged from your mother or your family. We know this is a painful day for some, for, for a lot of reasons. And I just want you to know that Jesus sees you. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. He loves you. And I can say that with confidence because of passages like Hebrews chapter 9. Passages like Hebrews chapter 9 shout to us the love of God and shows us the length that Jesus was willing to go to to demonstrate the love of God to us. And so if you are sitting here this morning and today is painful, Jesus sees you, He knows you, He loves you, and He proved it at the cross. And in Hebrews 9, we'll look a little more about the extent of His work at the cross. Would you pray with me and we'll, we'll dive in. Father in heaven, You are so kind to us. You're so merciful. You are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I love You. God, my love for You so often feels so weak and fragile and small and inconsistent. God, I am sorry. Forgive me. Thank You that You love us not in the way that we love You. Your love for us is fierce and consistent and overflowing. Thank You, God. Thank You, God. Thank You for Your Word that instructs us. Thank You for the book of Hebrews that gives us such great insight into Your character and to Your work on our behalf. God, I pray what Pastor Jonathan prayed earlier, that You would show us Your glory this morning through the book of Hebrews. And may Your Word this morning transform us. God, I ask that You would use Your Word, the book of Hebrews, this morning to shape us, to mold us, to make us to be more like Jesus, I pray. And I ask all these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as we've been going through the book of Hebrews the last few months, we have seen the writer of Hebrews talk a lot about Jesus. Because he knows that if you are focused on Jesus, that will give you the strength to say no to the temptation 
to walk away from the Christian faith. The more you think about Jesus, the stronger you will be, the more likely you will be to persevere by God's grace. He talks a lot about Jesus, and he wants us to think often about Jesus. In this letter, he has told us that Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the Levitical priests. Jesus is even better than the angels. The writer of Hebrews has told us that Jesus is sinless, that he has an indestructible life, that he is a king, and that he is divine, the exact imprint of God. The writer of Hebrews is making it very clear. Listen, if you walk away from Jesus, whatever you walk towards is a downgrade. It's a downgrade. Everything outside of Jesus is a downgrade. In particular, if you go back to the old covenant that has been rendered obsolete. Now, to be clear, the writer of Hebrews here, he's not being pejorative toward the old covenant. He's not dogging on it. That's That's not his goal. He is simply making it clear that the old covenant is obsolete. It was very good in its time, but it's no longer of value because it doesn't do what we need. What we need is for our guilt and stain, the guilt and stain of sin, to be removed from us, and the Old Covenant cannot do that. <clears throat> Last week, Pastor Jonathan gave a, a metaphor using a car. I want to use, sort of a, use a car analogy again, but sl- with a slightly different emphasis. I think about the Old Covenant like it's a car, and if you just kind of get across town, it could get you there, right? So imagine you've got a car, good car, bad car, whatever, doesn't matter. But imagine you've got a car, you've got to get across town. Well, the car will do the, will do the job. And said, hey, I don't want to get across town. I actually, I want to get to the moon. Well, the car is not going to get you there. Like, you can't drive to the moon. And that's not the car's fault. Just the car wasn't designed to get you to the moon. To get to the moon, you need something way bigger and better than a car. You need a rocket ship. And the new covenant is like that rocket ship. The old covenant was good. It did the job in the past. But now we have a grander goal. We have a final destination that is much grander than what was previously taught. And now we need something bigger and better. We need the new covenant. It's inappropriate to expect a car to drive you to the moon. Similarly, it would be inappropriate to expect the old covenant to remove permanently the guilt and stain of sin. That's not what the old covenant was was designed for. But the new covenant can, it can remove permanently the guilt and stain of sin. And that's what Hebrews 9 is helping us to see. Now, now previously in the book of Hebrews, we've already seen this, particular last week, that the author is highlighting the things that the Old Covenant cannot do, right? Pastor Jonathan talked about that last week. Pastor David talked about two weeks ago. There are things in Hebrews 8 making very clear, listen, the Old Covenant, it's obsolete. It's ready to vanish, the end of Hebrews 8 says. But here in Hebrews 9, the author is actually going to highlight something valuable about the Old Covenant. He's going, to, he's going to point to one of the primary purposes of the Old Covenant, and he starts doing this by reminding them of some of the components of the Old Covenant. That's what he's doing. 
in, from verses 2 to verse 5, he is summarizing or reminding them of all of the elements, all the components that were in the tabernacle. Pastor Mike just read it for us a, a moment ago. The author of Hebrews is reminding them, listen, remember there's a tabernacle, and in the tabernacle, in this big tent, there's two sections, right? And, and the entrance to the first section is, is a cur- has a curtain, and you'd have to go, to get to the first section, you got to get past that first curtain, and if you're in the first section, you're in the holy place. And then there's a second curtain, and if you get past that second curtain, then you're in the most holy place. So he's reminding them of something that they are very familiar with. And for those of you who, who have been with us through the Exodus and Leviticus series, you would, you, this will be familiar to you as well. And then he begins to remind them all the stuff that's in the two sections, right? He's saying, he's saying remember in, in the first section, in the holy place, you've got the lampstand, a table, the showbread, right? There's, 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 there's some stuff happening here. There's furniture here. And then he says, okay, remember, when you get past the second curtain, that's the most holy place, right? That's what he's saying to them. And he's like, in the most holy place, in that second section, past the, past the second curtain, that's where you're going to find the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God. And in the Ark of the Covenant, you're going to You're going to have the the golden urn that's holding the manna, and there's Aaron's staff is there, and you've got the the tablets of the covenant that are in there. And so he's reminding them of these things already. He's like, listen, remember, there's a tabernacle, there's two sections, two curtains, holy place, most holy place, and there's a lot of stuff going on here in this tabernacle. And then what he's about to do is he's about, later in this chapter, he's going to tell them very clearly why all that elaborate stuff was set up the way it was. It it wasn't by accident. In fact, God gave very specific instructions and blueprints for how they were to construct the entire tabernacle and to arrange the furniture in the tabernacle. It was very particular. More than 30 times in the book of Exodus we read that Moses built the tabernacle according to the pattern, according to the pattern given him. This This was very important. So then he moves on from, the, from reminding him of this. And then in, in verses 6 and 7, he begins to remind them of the priestly protocols. Look at verse 6 and 7. He says this. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But, in the, <clears throat> but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year. He's reminding them, listen, there were regular duties, weekly duties that the priest had. They would go into the first section to do various tasks on behalf of the people. But then once a year, the high priest would go past that second curtain into the second section, but only once per year on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would go into that most holy place. And we saw in Leviticus 16... Those of you who were with us in the Leviticus series, Leviticus series, in Leviticus chapter 16, it gives all of the instructions as to what the high priest was supposed to do when he got into that second section. On the Day of Atonement, there were several different sacrifices that happened. There would be a bull that was sacrificed for the, the priest's own sins, and then there would be these two goats. And the writer of Hebrews is alluding to these these instructions that they were given, these sacrifices. There were these two goats for the sins of the people. One goat would be slain, one goat would be sent into exile. 
So the writer of Hebrews, he's recapping all of these very particular protocols. There's, there's all this elaborate stuff that God told us to do a long time ago, and we've been doing it. And I want you to know that there's a very particular reason why God asked them to do it this way, why God commanded them to do it this way. And he gives us the reason for that in the first few words of verse 8 here of Hebrews 9. Look at just the first six words with me of verse 8. It says this, by this the Holy Spirit indicates. This entire elaborate system the Holy Spirit was orchestrating to indicate something, to demonstrate something. The furniture, the sacrifices, the protocols, the schedule, everything was being orchestrated by the Holy Spirit to indicate something to us. Another English translation renders that section of verse 8 this way. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed. The reason why this entire system was structured the way it was structured, because God was revealing something to us. All of this stuff is designed to point to a grander reality. All of this stuff is a picture, a depiction of something greater that is to come. You could sort of say that the old covenant was like a map. Right? It was like a map. Imagine you're, you're looking at a map, and the map is well-crafted, it's well-designed, it's very particular. It gives you an accurate depiction of whatever region it's supposed to represent. It's the map. It's good. It's valuable. It has a purpose. But the map by itself is not all that valuable. The map is only valuable when it accurately depicts the, lo the physical location. Maps are not the jam. They're not the most important thing. No one takes a week off of work and vacation to go hang out with a map. You know, that's what you do, right? No, the, the, the map has a purpose. It's to point you to the place you ultimately want to be. And that's what the Old Covenant did. The Old Covenant was good and valuable mostly because it depicted a greater reality, and it points us to the place where we want to be in the new covenant with our great high priest. The old covenant, you could say, was pedagogical in nature. It, it, it taught us things. And so while the new covenant is certainly better than the old covenant, there's actually much to be learned about the new covenant from the old covenant. The new covenant is different and better in many ways, but there's actually some similarities, and that was done on purpose. God had the new covenant in mind, and so when he created the elaborate system of the old covenant, he baked in all these things, he wove into the design of all these things, images or depictions of that grander, greater covenant. There are things in the new covenant we better understand by looking at the old covenant. And that's in essence what the writer of Hebrews is doing here in the first half of chapter 9. He is saying, remember all that stuff? I'm going to use that stuff to teach you something about the newer, better covenant. The old covenant is obsolete. It's ready to vanish. It's passing away. However, there are things in that new covenant to help us understand the, there are things in that old covenant to help us understand the new covenant. And then he transitions and look at verse 11 and 12 with me. He says this, 
But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands. We'll pause there for a moment. He's like, you guys remember the tent? The tent was important. It was valuable. It's where, it's where God dwelled. But there's a better tent, a tent not made with human hands. Oh, there's a grander tent, not an earthly tent, a heavenly tent in the throne room of God. And that's where Jesus went to make an offering on our behalf. So just like the Jewish high priest of old would go into the second section, the holiest, most holy place of the tent, likewise, Jesus went into the most holy place to offer something on our behalf. Just like the high priest would make an offering for the sins of the Jewish people, Jesus makes an offering for his people, for you and I. But Jesus is a better high priest, entering into a better tent and offering up a better offering. Look at verse 12, it says this, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus did not bring an offering of bulls and goats into the heavenly tent. No, he offered himself. God incarnate, God become a man, dies on our behalf. He offers himself up. In Galatians 3, the apostle Paul says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became a curse and was treated as if he was a curse by God the Father so that you would not have to be treated that way. He became a curse so that you would not have to be. He suffered under the wrath of God so that we would not have to. He suffered the penalty in our place. And continue through Hebrews 9, verse 13. The writer of Hebrews is about to tell us that the goats and bulls in the Old Testament, they were actually useful to some extent. There, there was actually some value to these bulls and goats. He makes that very clear. <clears throat> he says that they did sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So the bulls and goats in the Old Testament actually did bring forgiveness of sin, a purification from sin to some extent for the Jewish people in the Old Testament. However, it was greatly limited, very limited. It didn't last forever. So the Jewish people knew that every single year, year after year after year after year, they were gonna to have to come back and continually offer up more sacrifices. They knew that this system, while it had a good purpose, it ultimately could not do the job. And that is permanently remove the guilt and stain of their sin. But it was of some value. And the writer of Hebrews is about to make this point. But he's going to go off in this sentiment. He's going to say, wait a minute. If a sinful priest could bring a bull and a goat to God, and that could have some value, how much more value will be, will it be when Jesus himself 
is the sacrifice. A sinful man with a bull and some goats could, could atone for the sins of the Jewish people for 12 months. How much more will the sacrifice of Christ atone for us? That wasn't permanent, but the new covenant is. It's permanent and it's new. He's like, if, if some bulls and goats could do this, how much greater will be the sacrifice of Jesus? Look at verse 14, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If bulls and goats could accomplish something, Jesus accomplishes something better. And he accomplishes that for you and for me. Just like we see in the book of Leviticus, all the sins were transferred to those animals and God punished those animals. They suffered the penalty in place of the Jewish people. Likewise, our sins are transferred to Jesus. They are imputed to him, removed from us, put on him, and God the Father punishes Jesus. Jesus takes the penalty for our sin at the cross. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you want to understand how it works? How does the death of Jesus 2,000 years ago affect you? You want to understand how that works? Here's how it works. Look at the old covenant, and that's a picture of how it works for you. As the high priest would take the sins of the people and put them on the goats, likewise God the Father takes all of the sins of his people and puts them on Jesus at the cross. So the old covenant is valuable in that way. And the old and new covenants are similar in that they give us a picture of this transfer that happens. However, the new covenant is very different in some other ways. So it's similar in some ways, but very different in others. There are three immediate things that stand out to me as about what makes the, the new covenant very different than the old. Number one is this. Jesus went to the Sacrifice. We became a sacrifice willingly. The bulls and goats weren't doing it willingly. They, they didn't freely choose. And on some of, the, some of the holy days for the Jewish people, when, they were, when lots of people were bringing sacrifices, I mean, you, you could have had hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of goats and animals being, being slaughtered. So it's a very bloody sight at the, in, the, in the tabernacle. There's lots and lots of animals being killed, lots of goats having their throats slit. It's a very, very gruesome scene. And not one of those animals chose to be there. In fact, if they could see what was happening, they wouldn't come. But Jesus sees the bloody moment, sees the blood and the mess that the sacrifices are causing, and Jesus says, I will step in that moment voluntarily. I will lay down my life for them. That is far greater than anything a goat ever did. The second major difference, I've already, I've already mentioned it, is that the second covenant, the better covenant, is permanent. It's permanent. Your sin has been forgiven. In verse 12, it say, he says that he did it once for all. Once for all. For all his peoples, it was complete. And the third thing that makes the new covenant 
significantly different from the Old Covenant, of course, is that the Old Covenant was just for one small ethnic group of people in Palestine. The New Covenant is for all peoples everywhere. This is why John the Baptist in, first, in, in John 1.29, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he shouted, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Not just the sins of a few, the sins of the world. <clears throat> Jesus went willingly. He accomplished something permanently for all peoples everywhere, for all who would believe on him. And here's what he accomplishes. Look at the, the, la the last clause of verse 14. He, he makes clear the results of the work of Jesus. He says, the blood of Christ will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Dead works are the choices that we make that lead us to death. The choices that we make that we ought to be rightly punished for. But because of Jesus, because of what he accomplished, our sins are forgiven. The sinful choices that should lead us to death have been nailed to the cross in the person of Jesus. And now we have been purified, wiped clean, and we can enter into the presence of God and enjoy him forever. We can enjoy him forever. This passage is dealing with this theology that we call atonement. Many of you are probably familiar with that word. The word atonement typically in the Bible would refer to something being paid for or something being covered over or something basically being taken care of, something being dealt with. And, and what we see in this elaborate system in the Old Covenant and then, of course, in the New Covenant is that God takes sin very seriously. He doesn't just let it slide. He's not just like, you know, let it go, it's good, it's fine. No, 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 no. Sin must be dealt with. And he finds a way, he, he gives us a way to deal with it in a way in which we can still experience his kindness and goodness. If you are a believer in Jesus this morning, your sin has been dealt with at the cross. You're not going to have to deal with it. It's been dealt with. Now, certainly we still experience the ramifications of sin and our own choices in this life. But the eternal redemption has been secured for you. If you are not a believer in Jesus this morning, I want to make it very clear. You will have to deal with your own sin. And it will not go well for you. Hebrews chapter 10 says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You should be frightened. If your sin has not been dealt with, it should frighten you that God will get his hands on you. Because he's going to pour out his wrath on that sin. Sin will be punished. There will be a penalty imposed. We call this this understanding of atonement, penal substitutionary atonement. That's kind of the, it's the theological phrase that's been used in the modern era to describe our understanding of what the Bible teaches. Penal implies a, a penalty or a punishment being imposed, and substitutionary 
implies that Jesus is our substitute, or there is a substitute. So penal substitution, that's the understanding that we have. That's what the Bible teaches of what takes place at the cross. In our last few minutes, I want to kind of just push back on some elements, some people in our culture that don't like this doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Some people claim that this understanding of atonement was actually invented in the 16th century by John Calvin, or maybe some other reformers. This was invented in the, in the, 16, in the 1500s, that no one before that believed that. Um, with all due respect, uh, they are wrong. There is tremendous evidence that people in the second and third centuries believed this. So sometimes people say that, I just think they're ignorant. I just think they don't know. They haven't actually read second and third century pastors and theologians. And sometimes they know that it's there, but they just think that you won't. And that's far more nefarious. But it's there. I don't have time to go through that this morning, but what I intend to do, God willing, this week is that in the, when we post a manuscript on our website, I'm going to put a link to several articles that d- decisively prove that. So if you're interested in knowing, okay, what early church fathers and, and theologians and pastors believed this idea? They didn't use the term penal substitutionary atonement. That, 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 the, the terminology is new, but the concept is very clear from the earliest days. And I'm gonna, I'll post some articles if you're interested, or if you want to come after the service, feel, I'll be up here. Feel free to come up. We'll have, love to co- have a conversation about that. There are other people who push back on pe- penal substitutionary atonement, and... <clears throat> And they say, well, there are other understandings of the atonement. There are these other atonement theories, or these other explanations of atonement. And what you actually find out is that these other understandings of atonement are actually not mutually exclusive with penal substitution. In fact, most of the time when people make arguments for other atonement theories and understandings, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah, the atonement is way more awesome than we realize. So penal substitution is true, and these other ones are true as well. Absolutely, yes and, but some people want to pit them against each other, and I think that's a, 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 flaw, a false dichotomy. So I'd encourage you, don't fall victim to that. There are other people who reject penal substitution, honestly, because they just don't understand it. And that's it's pretty common, and so we can walk with them through Hebrews chapter 9 and help them understand it. Some people don't, some people reject penal substitution because they have a, a low view of Scripture, and they think they can pick and choose what parts of the Scripture they can reject. So they pick, they like some and reject others, and they go, ah, we don't really like that whole God, God has wrath stuff. That's gross. So we're just going to ignore that passage of Scripture. So some people do. Uh, And then there are other people who love the Bible, but they just can't stomach the idea that God is a God of wrath, that God is going to punish sin. They can't stomach that. It doesn't doesn't logically compute to them. So they find ways to massage the the scriptures. They're not being nefarious in most cases. In most cases, they're just, they just, ah, they can't stomach it. So they they find an interpretation of passages that fits better with a different understanding of atonement so that they don't have to think about this whole idea of penalty and punishment. Oh, I don't want to deal with that. I don't like that idea. Here's the problem with that. We should believe whatever the Bible teaches us. And if you disagree with God, it is not God who is wrong. We must be very careful to not allow our modern sensibilities to inform how we read the text. We need to read the text on its own terms, what the author meant to communicate to his audience 
and we embrace that wholeheartedly, even if we don't like what it has to say. God can handle you saying, I don't like that. He's, he can handle that. He's strong enough. He can, he can take it. In fact, he already knows that's how you feel, so admitting it, it's not going to be a surprise to him. We must be careful that we do not manipulate the scriptures. The Bible very clearly teaches penal substitution. The old covenant gives us a depiction of the new covenant that Jesus, in our place, takes the wrath of God so that we don't have to. It's permanent and it purifies. Two final points of application. If you are a believer this morning, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You do not have a scarlet letter on you. That nagging sin that keeps coming up in the back of your mind, maybe your past sin, something you continually feel guilty about, that sin, the most disgusting sin you've ever committed, the most heinous thing you've ever done, is forgiven. Psalm 103.12 says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 43.25, he says this, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God says, I'm the one that blots out that sin. I'm the one that erases it. And I'm the one that says, I'm not going to remember it. Why do you continue to bring it up? Why do you continue to choose to remember that which God has said? It is forgotten. Christians, to all who humbly seek the mercy of God, we say to you, in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. Praise be to God. That's my first point of application. Your sins are forgiven. Number two, last thought. Jesus dying in our place shows us the love of God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says this. This is how God shows his love. Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. When you were at your worst, when you were in a sinful state, not even thinking about God, when you had nothing of value to offer him, he saw you and said, he's mine. She's mine. He looked down the corridors of time and said, that kid is mine. I will do whatever it takes to get you in my family, even if it means I enter into a bloody moment to be the sacrifice on their behalf. Because I love them. He said, I love you. He said, Jonathan, I love you. I'm going to the cross for you. He said, Tommy, I love you. I'm going to the cross for you. He said, Melena, I love you. I'm going to the cross for you. He said it for you. He said, Megan, I love you. I'm going to the cross for you. He said, Devin, for you in your place. He said, because I love you. And whenever you doubt my love for you, pause and remember the cross where I said, I love you this much. 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. The old covenant was specifically designed to teach us something about the new covenant, the better covenant, mediated by a better high priest, the king priest who loved you and gave himself for you. Church, that is worth remembering every single week. And that's why we come to this table every single week to remember that he became the sacrifice in our place because he loves you. In just a moment, our pastors are going to come. We're going to serve the, the bread first and then the wine as we do every single week. And this meal is open to all here who believe. If you are a believer in Jesus, your sins have been dealt with, come partake in this meal to remember that with us this morning. We invite you to participate. But if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, if you're not there yet, you're not sure, I, I would encourage you to let the trays pass. Don't take communion with us this morning. But instead, don't let the, don't let the moment pass. And rather than taking communion with us this morning, take Christ. Take Christ instead. If you have any questions of what that means, what that looks like, I will be up here after the service. I'd love to have a conversation with you about that. <clears throat> uh, in a moment, we'll pass the bread. It's gluten-free. Hold it. We'll take it together. <clears throat> the bread, the body of Christ is the true bread. Let us serve you now. <clears throat> 